Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Kelly McDermott, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really grateful and glad to have you on the show today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. You've been on my mind. This is season three, and it's a season dedicated to conversations around stress and the nature of stress. And I'm glad to pivot towards an assistant professor who's interested in health service research, the prevention of chronic disease. Um, You're the co-director of health policy leadership for USF. And, you know, we've, I've been hanging out in these shows with athletes and, and Vietnam veterans, and it's been really deep and heavy in, in some really powerful ways of people who are on that far edge of stress experiences. And so I'm, I'm really glad to kind of bring it into comprehension and understanding around stress. And uh, for more people who don't have extreme experiences with war or professional athletes to just kind of ground into this conversation. So I've been thinking about you and your work. And so uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got into it. So I think like everybody, I have kind of this very circuitous path of how I got here. I started off um, doing health policy work in DC. I was at the Agency for Healthcare Research and um, Policy. And um, I actually decided to pursue my um, PhD in health services research because policy to me, it felt so, um, uh, there was an element of it that was not grounded and that was not concrete enough. And so I turned towards the data to just feel like I had my bearings. It was something that was not subject to the whims of uh, politics and people's opinion. And so, you know, coming out of D.C., that was like a real breath of fresh air for me. But it really is this pendulum in my life, right? I, I kind of go towards the more ephemeral ephemeral piece. And then like, I'm like, I need to retreat back into data. I need it to be more concrete. Um, And so that's actually what brought me out to the West Coast was uh, my doctoral research and health services research. And I started off doing work in um, uh, cardiovascular disease, actually, at the VA. And so I was doing a lot of work with quality improvement. And um, when I completed my doctoral training, I uh, was working at the VA and I started working with a gastroenterologist who was really into mindfulness-based stress reduction, so MBSR. And he had actually gotten money from the Gates Foundation to do a randomized control trial with veterans to see if teaching them MBSR, so mindfulness meditation, if that would help with um, their GI symptoms and anxiety and with PTSD. So, you know, in my life, outside of my professional experience, I had 
been trained as a yoga teacher and was teaching yoga and meditation. And it was a huge part of my personal practice. So this is really the first time that I had this overlap where I could start to study what I loved and what was driving me and not necessarily what, you know, where the funding priorities were, but really what was driving me. After working with David Kearney on those projects, I was hooked. I was really hooked. And so I found this postdoc at uh, UCSF in the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. And I moved and moved up to San Francisco. And I did a three-year postdoc um, up there with Rick Hecht, uh, Judy Moskowitz, it was just an incredible experience in wolf mailing. And at that time, I was able to focus really on looking at the impacts of mindfulness and body awareness and how that influences how people take care of themselves. So, you know, what we think of more generally as like health behaviors, whether they're conscious or unconscious, I was really interested in like, is this something we can teach skills around mindfulness and body awareness that can help people take care of themselves better. So that was really, again, like a very eye-opening time in my life where, again, I got to dig into areas that were, they were so important to me. It was less about you know, how are, how are we going to get this grant? It was more about like, this is fascinating. This is, I think this is it, you know? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I love the overlap there. And I'm curious, I want to keep talking about you for a little bit longer, but just since you were getting the show underway and bringing everybody up to the same speed, what does health services research mean What it, when you do that? And then when you did this like passion, like, wow, this really matches who I am. What did you find? So let's see. I started my doctoral training in the early 2000s. And it was kind of before I, I hate giving <laughs> dates. You know, I just hit the age where I'm like, oh. Um, but it was before we had kind of the language around data science and data scientist what we were doing at that point is training in a lot of different statistical methods and epidemiological methods to manipulate very large data sets. And at that time, it was before there was a lot of data collected via digital health. We were mostly looking at like hospital data or health services data. So data where they're already collecting, they're collecting it to bill insurance companies. Um, but that's like, that's what health services is or was when I was really kind of focused on it. It was like the pre-data science field. I, now it's, it's, similar. There's overlap, and I think it's expanded even more into different areas, but it was really a focus on data at that point. Before the digital revolution. So it must be a massive revolution in this whole field of research around health behaviors in the past 20 years. The, the kind of data that we're able to collect and really monitor how people are engaging with their own health behaviors. It's been pretty incredible what, you know, even just like these smartphones have done for the quality of health behavior data. So once I got to UCSF and started working with mindfulness and body awareness interventions, 
that I was able to start focusing on health behaviors and how to start changing health behaviors. And my motivation for that really was, you know, when I was at the VA, I had done all of this work with veterans who had um, an acute myocardial infarction. So they had had a heart attack. Uh, Many of them were in really bad shape. You know, they would come in and they had multiple chronic diseases. They were, you know, they were, had a huge list of medications that they had to be on. They're just kind of in a bad, in a bad way. So some of the work that I was really interested in doing is like, how do we target health before it gets there? Right. And so then you kind of go back in time and really with a lot of these chronic diseases, the predecessor is health behaviors. You're you're doing these health behaviors and health behaviors are really like, how do you take care of yourself and how do you cope with stress? Because there's always going to be stress coming at you in all these different directions, right? How, yeah. how do you deal with that? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a great question. And we're going to get into that. And I want to come back to the not to forget the GI research mm-hmm. project you did. What, what did you find there? Well, we found that Teaching these veterans MBSR, uh, so teaching them mindfulness, and uh, there's also body awareness that's in the in MBSR. MBSR is like kind of a clinical intervention that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So we found that it it reduced um, GI-related anxiety, that it reduced symptoms aligned with PTSD in this small cohort. So it's incredibly encouraging. I mean, I think something that's really interesting is at the time, so this was, again, like maybe mid-2000s, the VA was not actually funding this research, which was inside the VA. Now the VA is doing all kinds of mindfulness research, but at the time it was pretty early, you know, and so... David had gotten this external funding from Gates Foundation, and they were interested in mindfulness and PTSD in looking more broadly at these war-torn countries and PTSD from civil war. So looking at civilian populations who had PTSD and and whether or not. So non-combat PTSD. Yeah, that was like their overall interest, but they were interested in PTSD in general. And so the VA, you know, is this amazing, has many cases of PTSD. So to study it within the VA, unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, so the findings were incredibly positive from this small, it was a pretty small randomized controlled trial that we did, um, and incredibly encouraging. You know, it was really at the beginning of what is now modern mindfulness research, which is huge, humongous. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's really grown. It really has grown in the past few decades. I want to come back to your story. And so you're there, you're at UCSF, and you're at the Osher Center, and you find this overlap between the data scientist part of yourself that's really like wants to anchor, and then there's a health policy part of yourself. And I think you called it ephemeral. I want to like build on that a little bit to where we're going because I know we do have some things in mind we want to talk about, but I want to keep including your path and really how you got to the interest you have in non-pharmacological resources to prevent chronic health diseases. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm weaving it in, I'm weaving it in. <laughs> um yeah so so I my work at Osher I was really 
focused on mindfulness and um, body awareness as these these strategies to help people prevent chronic disease. So, you know, at the time also there was like, we have like diabetes prevention program where it was, there's a huge trial that, um, I mean, this was 20 years ago at this point that showed that a lifestyle intervention, so just health coaching, um, changing your diet, exercising would have the same impact as taking metformin or a better uh, improvement over taking metformin. And so that's really where kind of the non-pharmacological interventions come in is like there was this era where we really were though there's a pill for that and trying to kind of address things pharmacologically and then turning our gaze in and when we're thinking about health behaviors and really like these upstream interventions to try to change people's lifestyle so it really is like a shift in thinking you know i i would say that i was more focused on mindfulness and body awareness when we were when i was at osher center and then it was at osher center actually i was doing um, a randomized controlled trial of uh they were pre-hypertensive adults who had i was teaching them like a mindful movement and mindful um uh intervention and we had all of these different supports and one of my mentors had developed um an inventory of body awareness that you know this this is it's called maya m-a-i-a and it um it's been translated into a million languages at this point it's 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 widely used and it's a pretty extensive inventory of body awareness and i had this one participant and so this study like because it was like a, an exercise study. They had all of these light things on them and there's all these cameras around. And so then we like track their movements. It's a very cool study, but I had them filling out these surveys afterwards. And I remember having this guy, he was filling out the body awareness survey and he came over to me and he was like visibly agitated. I wouldn't say angry, but almost angry. And he said, what does this mean? do I feel at home in my body? Like, I don't even know what that means. I was like, well, you know, just answer the best you can. But it stuck with me. Like, it resonated so deep. I'm like, this is so many people. You know, I can think of so many people in my life who would have the same reaction to that question. And it's almost like there's like this cultural I don't know if it's like a, and we can talk more about this, like it's because we're missing some kind of cultural support that creates that integration, or it's just like where we have arrived in our culture, where this is not something that that people, that can be assumed that people reach adulthood with, this like kind of integrated sense of their, their body and their self and their mind. And, and so... I was really struck by this participant and I, you know, I just started chewing on this and I was like, when does this happen? When, why, like how, in our culture, like there's a million things I could criticize about our culture and about how it doesn't promote health generally, you know, from that lens at that time when I was really thinking about how to use mindfulness and body awareness where you're so intimately involved in kind of what is happening with you that 
you're automatically going to like know how to take care of yourself. But I was so fixated on this person's um, reaction. I really started to kind of go back and say like, you know, I wonder if it, this is something that happens around puberty where all of a sudden who you are as a child doesn't work anymore. Like everything changes. You're physiologically totally a different person, but yet somehow the same person. And that's really where my interest um, kind of arose with rites of passage. So looking towards more traditional um, cultures and communities who are, who have had, have like a long history of connection with place and with each other and how they support their members through these transitions. We don't have any support for adolescents, I mean, as a part of our general culture through this transition, like, yeah, they get, they get like the sex ed classes that talk about menstruation and, you know, like at this really high level, but there's not really any kind of comprehensive or integrated support. And so that's really where my interest kind of turned towards rites of passage. And I, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place a little bit here. No, it's great. I love I love that you're bringing in rites of passage. You know, that's how we met, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That's how we met because you're interested in rites of passage and my work with Stepping Stones Project, rest in peace, Stepping Stones. I had an overlay there, had a moment where we were where we started to connect and do some collaboration around the research you're doing. And I want to talk about rites of passage. And I think it's good to know how you got there. And I think it's really important to see the relationship And I really like actually this person's, I would call it a stress response of like irritation of like, I don't know what to do with this question and and how you started using that as a, a, an irritant to kind of explore what's going on with this. How is it that someone could not have a sense of being embodied Mm -hmm. um, in their lives and where does that, where does that split or where does that disintegration or discoordination come from? Before we get into the rites of passage, so this is going to be a little bit later in the show, but I want to get to this health behavior part mm-hmm. um, because that when I when we, we started collaborating around the rites of passage work and you you know you shared your survey and you showed how you were asking these questions, it really blew my mind. Partly because I was thinking about my own adolescence, I'm like, oh yeah, health risk behaviors, that's me. <laughs> you know, like I could see so much of my young self in the choices I was making as a young person coming of age and just uh, the immaturity I had and um, other things going on. I'll, maybe I'll talk about some of that, but I could see that. So there's, there's health behaviors like self-care behaviors, and then there's risk behaviors. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at chronic disease and we're looking at veterans and we're looking at civilians, not, you know, in combat civil war situations, even though they're not combatants, and we're looking at what we do with our life, how we behave and where we go and, and the choices we make to tie that back towards, well, and you know, adolescence rites of passage is important, but even earlier, and this is, I know another thing that you have some passion or some interest in is adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think one of the keystones for me, why I become so interested in stress and why I'm so interested in evolution and why I'm so generally passionate around these things is the connection between things like adverse childhood experiences, health risk behaviors, rites of passage, the human brain, evolution, and stress. And stress is like a master like 
ingredient that's just playing throughout all of these. So I want to talk about health risk behaviors and stress and adverse childhood experiences. And then I think these other thing called PACEs are positive childhood experiences. So what do you think of all that? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I think you're um, identifying stress as like this master ingredient or like the, you know, the, the behind the scenes with its fingers and everything, um, I think is a really good way to think about it. And especially in terms of, of health, health behaviors. Um, so, you know, one clarification, I think it, that's important to make up front. And I, I, I offer this, I, I'm actually teaching a health behavior class right now you know, health behaviors is actually um, pretty broad. And so this includes, um, as you mentioned, like health promoting behaviors and then also health risking behaviors. And one of the reasons we're so interested is because if the health promoting and the health risking behaviors, these are all the upstream actions that if you do these over time, you find yourself with chronic illness. Right. So they can be really challenging because especially early on or at any one point in time, it doesn't seem like that horrible of a thing. Right. So, oh, yeah, whatever. I I eat ice cream after dinner. Yeah. But over time, like eating way too much added sugar creates obesity and you end up with chronic illness over time. So when we're talking about. ACEs and kind of these um, earlier events that are happening in childhood. So ACEs stands for adverse childhood events and then PIECES is positive childhood events. Um, you know, there was a study back in the 90s, I think it was Kaiser, and it was just this really incredible finding. That, and that's what initiated all of the ACEs work and research. And and what they found, and it was like many thousands of participants, and what they found is that they had an index of, I think, 10 different uh, childhood events, and they were either personal or kind of intrafamilial events. And uh, it's like verbal abuse, kind of the... I yeah, feeling unprotected, having a parent, losing a parent to death or incarceration. Um, I think the other ones are uh, not having enough food. Yeah. So major stressors in childhood, right? I mean, That's right. trauma. That's right. I think what's really interesting about it is that the ACEs change actually like the way that a child's brain functions and adapts and copes with stress. And... That's one of the mechanisms of how ACEs creates long-term illness in adults, right? Yeah, let's walk through that. So you have an adverse childhood experience or event. Mm -hmm. You're abandoned in some way or you didn't get enough or there's violence in the household or there's drug addictions where parents can't be pro protective or there's also expanded ACEs where they're looking at racism or the community mm -hmm. you grow up in and other kinds of situational place stressors. And so that happens. You get those. You get a high dose of adverse childhood experiences. You're unprotected. You're unbuffered. You're a child. Your brain's forming, whether that's at 2, 7, or 13. And so what happens? How does that, what's the road to chronic disease from there? So when we're talking about health behaviors, 
there is also like a stress response. And so people who've got higher ACEs are more likely to use certain risky health behaviors to buffer that stress response, right? So there's, with higher ACEs, you also have higher likelihood of smoking, higher likelihood of um, risky sex in teenage years, and um, um, higher likelihood of substance and alcohol use, higher likelihood of depression. So uh, these, it's it's the it's the mediator, it's the in between. The health behaviors are so not only does it change how your brain functions, it changes how your how you um, are able to cope with stress. Yeah, or the decision-making processes around stress. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, the way I always think of it is like a flooding. And so you either dissociate or you mm -hmm. figure out a way to dissociate or you need to somehow buffer it, right? Like, yeah. and so that's where a lot of some of these health behaviors start coming in as they are a buffer for chronic stress. And, and, and the buffer are the, are the short-term pleasures, the short-term pleasures of the nicotine, the sexual experience. Yeah, the I mean, drug it's high. a way to get, it's just a way to get some momentary relief from the stress. And then it becomes, you know, it might become a perpet, it's something that perpetuates itself. Yeah, no, it does. And, and I'm, just, I'm just thinking about the self medication part, you know, like this, the need for self medication um, as part of that dealing with the pain. You know, yeah. or the, or the implicit hurt that comes along when you know instinctually you know you're unsafe or you feel unprotected. I, I also think a little bit about the decision making process or the lack of you know for me and my models in terms of I think about stress is that that we have different evolved levels of a stress response based on the history of evolution. So we have an energy part and we have a, a focus part. Uh, energies from cells, focuses from reptilian social care and emotions are mammalian. And then we have like a human part where we can kind of put it all together and kind of imagine and think and create with all those uh, layers or platforms inside us. And so my thought about when we're harmed because we don't get like the social care, we don't get the energy safety or, or there's not the focus or attention is that the whole system gets a little discoordinated, mm -hmm. you know? And I think this part, if I think about my own life is like, Oh, I had too much impulse and I couldn't integrate or come into my whole self or my full self in a certain way in order to make the decisions, partly because I was immature, but partly because I was really hurting mm -hmm. as a young person. Yeah. And so that really impacted, you know, how I approach groups and the groups I approached and the choices I made. Um, so, uh, but I, w I just wanted to add that in as my personal sense of it from my own experience and my own uh, work with people. Well, and I think it has, it, it, I think it's a powerful insight to also bring in like, there is this dynamic of the individual and then even like the, in the social, right? And so how does the individual see themselves fitting with the social and then the social feeds back into the individual. And you can see like health behaviors as a pathway or a mechanism that starts to embody the social in your body, right? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, and this is this is 
Nancy Krieger's eco-social theory is just brilliant and but the like the concept of embodiment and how a body starts to reflect the social environment and health behaviors is a major pathway right and coping with stress we pick up these uh, behaviors in order to to help us cope with the stress of the social environment and that has an impact on on the body and then the body the body doesn't lie right it's true but the body has a story to tell and it may or may not be the same kind of narrative as the voice coming from the body but the body will reflect the social environment and maybe this looks like chronic illness right that's so beautiful yeah yeah and so the illness is both coming outside in Exactly. And inside out in terms of that dynamic absolutely it's bi-directional that's really powerful it brings up lots of questions around willpower and uh, what we think we're in control of and how much our environments are influ- influencing who we think we are and how much choice we have. And I know that's true with the deeper parts of the brain, but it's really powerful to, to recognize that. And I'm forgetting, I know he's got a Greek name, but I know that I was exposed to some research of a man who says, you know, a lot of who we hang out with determines our health behaviors. Nicholas Christiasos or something like that out of the East Coast. Is it connected? They wrote. That sounds right the book so it's all like social networks yes social and networks yeah yeah uh, um but no so social networks is a huge part but and and i think like all of these can be pieces that are um encompassed by also this like individual reflecting their social and their and and, and integrating it and in kind of this bi-directional relationship between the two. So, you know, even with all these theories that we have, we've got tons of theories on health behaviors. Like everyone loves to sit in their um, academic office, especially like old white male academics. Uh-huh. <laughs> And think about it, who are psychologists and think about why people do the things they do, yeah. right? Um, and this was kind of, you know, the, and there's like a couple that we teach in courses and the ones that are really, um, that get used and, and they mostly get used just because they're the ones that everyone knows about. So, um, and this is like social cognitive theory, trans theoretical model, health belief model, uh, theory of planned behavior. Like these are like the big ones that you'll see across the literature. Just stepping back a little bit. These are all models and they're based on observations of why people do the things they do. Why do people behave this way? And part of this is like, you know, we like to think that just giving someone information, oh, this person is smoking because they don't know smoking's bad for them. <laughs> If it was only so simple, if it was only so simple. (laughs) And I think so much of it, the intervention research that we have going on makes this, like that is a very, very much an underlying assumption is like, oh, we just need to provide them with information. So that is true for some small part of the time. Someone doesn't know, you'd let them know and they're like, oh gosh, I had no idea this was dangerous. Let me change my behavior, right? But that's not the case. There's like millions of different things that are kind of feeding in to how somebody actually pursues a health behavior or her, enacts a health behavior. And so just to break it down real simple, like a health behavior, like what you choose to eat in the morning, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, what you choose to eat. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. Right now I have my students in my class I have them do this experiment. And so I give them a list of 
recommended behavior changes. So it's like drinking eight glasses of water a day or reducing your added sugar, getting the minimum vigorous and moderate activity a day. So they're like pretty standard health behaviors. And I said, okay, pick one of these. And for the next three weeks, you're going to try to change it. And you're going to provide us with updates and let us know how it's going. And part of the reason I do this experiment with them is because it's one thing to like sit in your office and think about why people do what they do. It is quite another thing to try to change your actual behavior, (laughs) right? They seem, they're kind of like these benign behavior changes that have a long-term impact, but a number of students are trying to drink more water and you, you see all of these really interesting sides of people come out. Like, you know, I found myself, I just didn't want to drink water and I wouldn't fill up my water bottle and I'm just not, you know, and it's, (laughs) but it's a very different experience of behavior change when you actually see it from the inside out. Yeah. Just going back to some of these theories, I think that they, they help us think about like people's belief systems and how they are, um, how some of their health behaviors may be reflecting social norms you know, how their intentions might be factoring in the um, theory that I hold above all other yeah, theories. Great. <laughs> um, so the work actually done by Susan Meachie and her colleagues, and um, they're in the UK. And honestly, the UK, I just feel like they take behavior change and health behaviors far more seriously than we do. Um, they have done... You know, at this point, like for the last 15 years, maybe close to 20 years, she has been doing this incredibly detailed survey of all of the theories and whether or not actually using them helps create behavior change. You know, what they ended up doing, so they surveyed the literature and they found that, yeah, there's like five theories that get used over and over again, but there's not a huge amount of evidence that like using a theory actually (laughs) makes an intervention effective. (laughs) Okay. I got this, I got a pet peeve around health dogmas and now I'm talking to somebody who's at the academic level. And do you, would you agree that a lot of this stuff just becomes dogma? Yeah. Cause that's my experience. Okay. So I'm an acupuncturist and I come in, I see people coming in with the list of all the things that they know they're supposed to be doing, but they can't be doing it for whatever reasons. I have theories around that I might share. And then they're just feeling terrible inside themselves because they're not meeting the mark of what a bunch of people in some room are telling them like how they should be living. And they don't really understand their condition. They just understand that there's things that they need to be doing better for themselves. And they have no idea how to get there. And then they know what it is and they're not. And they just feel pretty bad about themselves. And I've seen it time and time again. Yeah, they just beat themselves up and then they, you know, and then maybe they have some kind of um, risky health behavior to cope with the beating themselves up. It's horrible. And it's true. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. I, I agree. I appreciate 100%. that so much. I feel so validated right now. Oh, okay, good. Thank you. If I could just offer like this funny story. So my husband is a biomedical engineer by training and um, he, you know, gives me the hardest time always about being in what he calls like soft science. And this, and I said, I don't know, you know, this is social science, what I do. And I have human subjects as my, or I have human beings as my subjects and you have mice 
as your subjects. So your subjects, you put them in a cage and, and actually there's a lot of kind of controversy around like putting mice in cages and, and like create the environment and how that actually affects their long-term health and what, how that is actually moderating the effect of our intervention. So that aside, I, I said to him, you know, you have mice, they're in a cage, you feed them what you want them to eat. You isolate them when you don't want them to be talking to each other. You create it all. I said, my subjects go home. They watch Fox News. They lie to me about what they ate. I was like, my work is so much harder than your work. Like, I know. I know. I'm like, this is like, because humans are complex. And so that, the, that's definitely, I, I think, some of the limitations that we bump up against with research generally, right? Like research is really about finding generalizable information, but the, com- like the, the complexity of humans and human behavior is like something that we're fighting against, right? Like this applies to you, but not if you have this or this or this or this or this or this or this. And that is very difficult to incorporate that complexity. And it's really kind of at the frontier of a lot of behavior change research, the complexity and how to incorporate that into intervention design and analysis. There's like a lot of work that's being done around really uh, building and testing very complex health behavior interventions. Because we're finally acknowledging, oh, it's not just about like whether you not there, whether or not you think that this is a risky behavior or not. Like that's not actually going to determine whether or not you do it. It's actually this very complex array of influences and beliefs. That's where we've moved into. Like there's finally this acknowledgement. Like some of these very individual level theories, they don't work. They, it's because if nobody exists in a in a vacuum, you know, over the last generation, far more focused on social determinants of health. And so we're admitting, I think, and embracing at this point that everything is within nested um, contexts, right? So you're, as an individual, you are in relationship with your family and you're in a community and and within that community, you know, you have you uh, engage with different organizations who may or may not be a part of that community. And then there are officials who are creating policy that dictates the money that you're allowed to use to create what your community needs. And so it's like spaghetti, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> and to think that there is like an arrow anywhere in here is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. No, I think that's really well said. And, I, and you're touching on some things that I think that are really important. Why, in terms of who we are in our social being and who we are in our, in our stress and our, and our health behaviors, why that matters in relationship to research and research theory and government policy and how we shape our society and how we think about ourselves and who we are. Um, but I, I did uh, distract you from the Michi. I think it's Michi or Michi. A researcher, and I just want to give you an opportunity to complete. Why is her work important to you? What I love about Michi's work, Michi and her colleagues, is that they really took a systematic approach 
to coming up with a theory. And you know, in my class, I have um, I have a slide that has like Frodo with the ring in his hand, and it's like the one theory that rules them all. They they've put decades of work into thinking about all of the pieces of the one theory. And so there is this very beautiful kind of parsimonious theory that they call combi. And it actually was inspired by uh, the U.S. legal system. So you need to have um, capability and opportunity and motivation in order to have um, a verdict, right? Uh, or um, yeah. guilt. Capability, opportunity, and motivation all have to be there. Now, that's interesting to think about that in relationship to health health behaviors. Yeah, so that's the calm, and then B is the behavior. So it's those three, and then there's like the internal mm. and then the external aspect of each one, right? So Pretty integrative. Yeah, and for her, instead of like picking like each individual thing that might have an influence, it's like, no, let's like put, let's create big buckets. And these buckets catch all of these different aspects of behavior. And so I think it's, it's incredibly elegant, right? It's like just these three different facets of it. Mm -hmm. No, I got it. And it makes sense. Um, and the, the internal and external level, I want to go towards paces and I want to go towards rites of passage, because I think this is really important when we're looking at health behaviors, we talked about adverse childhood experiences and how they prime us in our life to maybe choose the the self-medicating short-term or the risky thing um, for different reasons. And then there's this other side, which is new research coming out, that there's positive childhood events, which actually are, there's a list of them. I looked them up. They're really, really interesting. Um, it's I always think about these things not just in terms of like, lists, but I think about in terms of who we are as a species, right? So um, the first mm -hmm. one is uh, if you ha felt you were able to talk with your family about your feelings. The second one is if you felt your family stood by you in difficult times. Um, the third one is you enjoyed a community tradition. And the fourth one is uh, felt and had a sense of belonging in high school. Very interesting one. And felt supported by friends is the fifth one. Had two non-parent adults take a genuine interest in you as a sixth and felt safe and protected by an adult in your home. And um, what do you know about what the impact of having those kind of and more of those kind of experiences in health behaviors and in the trajectory of, of one's life? Where I have been very interested in positive childhood uh, experiences is the work of Bob Segge, who I think is at Tufts, and they have de developed a framework called HOPE, which is um, health outcomes from positive uh, experiences. And um, they, he and I think Christina uh, Bethel published a paper a couple years ago, and um, they asked uh, adults uh, about their adverse childhood experiences and then also about their positive childhood experiences. And what they found is that the positive childhood experiences actually moderated the effect of 
the adverse childhood experiences. So even when people had higher adverse childhood experiences, as long as they had these positive childhood experiences, they didn't end up having like depression and relational issues as adults. Whereas that's something that we would typically have seen. With, with they just had a high A score. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I think is really interesting about this is like when you think about ACEs, of course, like the initial thought we, we start investigating ACEs is like, oh my gosh, how do we stop adverse childhood experiences. Let's stop all of it. You know, like, let's have all these parenting interventions. Let's, let's do what we can to stop adverse childhood experiences because they are making people sick as adults and because they're horrible just on their own terms. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now like the second Avenue is, you know what? Adverse childhood experiences are going to happen. They're a part of growing as person and living in a culture, but we can, um, we can lessen the impact. We can create resilience by also ensuring that kids are having these positive childhood experiences. So in a way it's like, um, it's, it feels like, um, uh, this realistic approach to what felt like this insurmountable, problem before right like we're not going to be able to 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 protect every single child no matter how hard we try but we can try to make sure that they have these factors in place that will build resilience and what it does is it allows them to have a functional coping strategy right they have a support network they are within in and of themselves able to cope with stress in a way that isn't, you know, doesn't affect their long-term health. That makes a lot of sense to me. And this gets right to the place where we intersected, which is rites of passage as a positive yeah. childhood experience. Cause when I looked at this list and I was like, you know, look, when I've the rites of passage work that I've done with young people and their families, cause it is a fam, it's an interaction. It's not just the youth alone. You know, it, it can mm -hmm. be, but it's better in, in, as a process of coming of age inside the family system, you know, but I'm like, wow, this is this is a lot of what rites of passage is. It's a conscious stress exposure. I'm going to put you into a difficult condition where you're going to be alone for a period of time without food, facing mm -hmm. your facing your feelings, <laughs> which is a mm -hmm. tradition. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a tradition that smart, wise cultures have been doing for, you know, generations and, you know, we've lost the art of to some degree. I would say that it's easy to say as a whole, the culture is vacuous, but I think at a lot of levels, people are really attuned to these processes instinctually, whether that's on the, the, the sports coach or the, or the English teacher or the acting teacher, you know, that the, in the theater that I think people just have this human thing still intact. It just, some places it gets missed, some kids get missed in some places it could actually mm -hmm. become stronger. And I'd like to see it get stronger in terms of how we understand our health policy and how we understand the importance of, yeah, we're going to be exposed to stresses. We are going to be exposed to adversity, but there are things we can do to build resilience or build maturity would probably be my word. Um, but yeah, enjoyed a tradition, felt a sense of belonging. Like, you know, when kids in these groups that I've worked with stepping stones and and in the sense that they have a place that's theirs where they can talk about their life once they're ready to do that because they're not always ready and they have a community of support that that's a really profound concentrated exposure to 
these kind of qualities. In particular, we've always had two non-parent adults, you know, mentoring these kids from anywhere from two to six, six years. And it's been, it's been really powerful. So, so rites of passage is something that you've come to as like, ah, oh, that, that irritated, uh, uh, surveillance yeah. that you had. And you're like, you know, I yeah. think I want to look at this area. So you've started looking at this area. You've started doing research around this. Where are you at in that process? What do you know so far and, and what's on your mind? That uh, research participant that I had and really the initiation of my interest in rites of passage is actually how I arrived at um, positive childhood experiences. So that was, you know, I was interested in this in terms of health behaviors, but then as the positive childhood experience literature is growing, like I saw the parallels, right? And uh, we did a study um 2018, the one that you and I worked together on, we designed a survey and we used, it was really interesting. And I, I love what you said about how there is kind of this human component in a lot of adults, like the, you know, the theater teacher or the coach who they're, they are providing what the rites of passage is provided to individual students or to groups of of adolescence, but there's not a cultural practice, and uh, and and so a lot of kids are not getting it. And and what was interesting with this survey because we designed a survey to see who was having who um, what young adults had had a, a um, an adolescent experience that aligned with rites of passage, kind of some um, components of rites of passage based on a framework that uh, David Blumenkrantz developed and published. Um, and he had identified 20 different components of rites of passage. And so we just, we took the university population at the university I work with, the university that my colleague works at, and we gave him a survey and said, did any of you have these experiences in adolescence? One thing that was really interesting about even just the survey development is it took us, you know, close to a year piloting the survey because we couldn't get the language right because we don't have a cultural understanding of what rites of passage is. And so you say rites of passage and people are like, yeah, you know, I got my driver's license and that's like a rites of passage. And, but because there's no reference point. And so we, it took a really long time of piloting with people to figure out what the language was to use. So then we, we finally developed the survey. We sent out the survey. The majority of people taking the survey, there was like 1,300 respondents, had not had any like formal rites of passage experience like through any kind of programming or anything. But they would select which um, of these 20 elements uh, they had had if they had had something aligned with that. And what we found, you know, much like with that that original ACEs study, they found a dose response of ACEs with with chronic illness. So the more ACEs you had, the more likely you were to have a chronic illness. What we found is the more rites of passage components you had, the more likely you were to have good or excellent uh, mental health and coping skills. So super interesting finding from that work and that, you know, I share that especially with people who are familiar or working in rites of passage and they're like, of course, you know, and <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. 
And I always like to say, you know, a lot of like evidence-based work or, or developing evidence is like what we've always known now with data, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, we're observing this. And I think in my senses, and maybe you can speak to this is like, why there haven't been, and there have been a, a lot, there has been a lot of work in rites of passage kind of programs and, um, but not a lot of, there's not a cohesive evidence base right now. And I wonder if that is because people who are doing it, like, you know, it works, right? You're, <laughs> you're like, I'm here. I see the impact of this, you know, like, I don't need to be convinced by your survey or whatever. Um, so I, I wonder, but taking that and kind of answering the second part of your question of what we're doing now is, so um, my colleague, Michaela George, who's at Dominican University, she and I have been working also with uh, Youth Passageways, which is kind of an umbrella organization of programs or experiences that are aligned with rites of passage. And so we have modified that initial survey to to send it out now to alumni uh, who have gone through rites of passage. So we have the first one, people who did not go through rites of passage. Now we're asking similar questions of those who did go through rites of passage and our young adults and to see what the difference is and where they've ended up. And so as a part of that program, we also have you know, we're going to be doing a series of interviews to try to also capture the story because, you know, I think something, a component of rites of passage and the work that's being done right now is that's really kind of the bleeding edge and, and a big challenge is like the tension of um, taking like a decolonized approach and, not appropriating any kind of indigenous practices or like being fully present with the different power structures that are involved. And so I think research itself, and and this is something I'm deeply interested in and really I've been trying to grow into is like, is a very kind of there is an implicit power structure in there, right? Like life is gray. Life is incredibly gray. As soon as you decide to measure something, you turn that gray into black and white, right? And so in doing that, you you throw out a lot of information. Now you have a binary, yes or no, right? And you don't have the full spectrum of color. And so that actually... Um, not only are you kind of throwing away information, but you you create the idea that there is no other information. And so it becomes really, really, it can become a tool of power. And so one of the approaches that we're taking in this next phase of the study is we're doing a lot of interviews because we want to acknowledge that we gave people a survey and we said, you know, Check whether or not you had this experience. Did you, you know, what did you have a sense of belonging? Yes or no? Yeah. Right. right. And that, and that, <laughs> I mean, even I know I look at myself when I take these, when I I take surveys, and I'm like, ugh, yeah. like I do not feel represented here in any way, shape, or form. And I I create surveys, like I understand why it's done, and but the fact that I don't feel like I am actually reflected. 
I think is huge. And so we're trying to bridge that a little bit by also interviewing the respondents and giving them the opportunity to tell the story of their experience. Yeah, the conundrum, the conundrum of being a modern person that um, the cultural traditions are broken for many and yet trying to s- gather a sense of tradition, whether that's a wilderness passage or, or how you do that, you know, outward bound or whatever that exposure is um, that allows one to to find a deeper sense of meaning, find a deeper sense of Michael Mead's always talking about this, the unique, the unique character and unique qualities um, that we each carry. And I, I do agree with this subjectivity that you have because it's like this question, like felt able to talk with family and friends, right? Like felt is a very subjective word. <laughs> and like, at what point, at what age, at, at when, and in what conditions and what circumstance. And I'm supposed to sum that up with a, a Likert on five or a yes or no on this. That's really right. difficult. And when I look at my own, um, when I look, cause I really, I use the ACE quiz in my clinic all the time because I believe it sets a threat tone. Like if you have a lot of ACE, your, your brain and your nervous system, your stress response is like, yeah, I got to kind of be really awake to this or I got to mm-hmm. really check out in some way, but either way yeah. there's strategies yeah. for adapting with a lot of unconventional risk. And my metaphor that I've come to use is, you know, you could take a, an ancient primeval primate and a primeval forest. And you're like, you put that early primate and you put it in a forest. There's lots of abundant food and there's very few predators and there's a very solid social group. It's going to thrive. It's alone. There's a lot of predators. There's no food. It's going to be stressed out and, and it has the mechanism and the range to respond to each of those situations. So you know, and then that can vary over time. It's not, you know, the forest could change or that, you know, the, the ecosystem can be changing on us. And so it, it is a very salient point to talk about the limits and the power structure related to investigating and finding data. My answer to why I think a lot of rites of passage people are, or I'd say for myself, are probably less interested in the data part is because I think for like myself, I chose a different path. And I think there's just ways in which this culture and subcultures fragments towards dominant traits or, or different reactions. But I, I like the idea of bringing rites of passage work, that deep, personal, unique work in a very moving way that can then be reflected. And I always doubt, like, can we, you know, if the society is 330 million people, how can we actually ever get to the level where policy can be effective and I just, I don't know that. So my solution is always to go local and invest in this as much as I can. But I think it's important to have people like you doing projects like you're doing in order to build that as much as we can, a coherent conversation. So, you know, when that politician picks up their thing, at their policy thing, and they say this, you know, at that hearing or at that meeting, these qualities are represented yeah, I mean, I like what you're saying resonates and and I see myself as serving this bridging function, right? And I've seen this for a long time. Like I am I'm not interested. I mean, this is and I don't know if you want to include this or not, but I was watching a colleague give a presentation on some research that was interesting. And, and it was digital health. And I just remember thinking, gosh, this is so boring. You know? 
also like totally aligned with what I have done in the past and what I have pursued research funding for in the past. And it's, you know, science is very incremental. Research is very incremental. And, um, but that's not the kind of research I want to do. Like I see myself as serving this translator function, right? Like there's people who are frontline with rites of passage who know it works. They don't need to see any data. And I want to try to translate that experience into the language of policy, into the language of funding, into the language of peer-reviewed literature, because, because that is what's going to get like rites of passage into schools or get it, you know, it's going to get it proliferated at a higher level where more people are going to have access to it. But it is more of a, it's a translation issue in my opinion, you know, so it's not, it's not really even discovering anything that practitioners don't already know in their bones, but it's about putting it into a language that a policymaker will be able to, to, to translate into money you know, and get things done and get access for people who don't already have access to it. I think you've just laid out your vision. That was my closing question for today. You know, what is your yeah. vision? Where are we going and how can we go knowing that early life shapes us in different ways and we we need a, a certain kind of intervention that blends adversity with resilience and rites of passage is definitely is like that ancient tradition that's been doing that for a long time. And so I just want to give you an opportunity to say anything more you want to say about your vision or what, what you'd like to call forth through your own work and for our society. I think for me, the topic is incredibly timely and it's at the intersection of climate change, um, indigenous and traditional cultures that have been subject to colonization, um, ACEs, positive childhood experience. So it's, it's stress. like the heart. Stress. Yeah. Stress. <laughs> stress. It's, at, I mean, it's at, it's central to all of these massive issues that we are, we're, we're in the middle of right now. And I think that it has, it has a, um, a perspective to offer. And I think that it's, it will give us a way forward that will be supportive of, you know, who we're going to be. Because I feel like as a, as a culture and as like a human species, we still don't we're, we still don't really have this clear vision on where the heck we're going, you know, and, um, and I, I feel like this work right now is to try to also inform that. Um, and I do think more immediate term, and, and, you know, I mentioned this is like trying to elevate m more of the traditional practices that have been connected to communities in place over time, over millennium, indigenous communities, traditional practices, bringing those in to, you know, like the array of tools that we have available and acknowledging the history behind them and, and also bringing like the spiritual side of a person up 
to the forefront, right? Like for the last couple generations, like that has just been pushed aside, pushed aside as not a component of health. But so bringing it back into center. And I think that thinking about rites of passage and how we take care of our kids and how we take, how we as communities take care of our individual members is a starting point. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.com.